professor at Olin College, and I study asteroids. I have a pretty cool job, and one of my favorite parts is getting to meet all the interesting people who spend their days exploring space. Each week, I'll introduce you to one of these smart folks and ask them to tell us about their corner of the cosmos. Today's guest is Cordula Panoche, who is a researcher and lecturer at the Department of European International and Comparative Law at the Faculty of Law at the University of Vienna in Vienna, Austria. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much, Carrie, for the introduction. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really excited that I can be here and speak about my work. Me too. Um, Cordula and I met at a conference and you gave just the best presentation. So I'm really <laughs> excited to, to have you on <laughs> yeah. the show. Yeah, I'm really excited too. Thank you. We are recording this on March 29th, 2022. And so we're doing this remotely. Also, we're in different continents. I am drinking a chai tea latte. The interesting thing about this drink is that the milk in the latte comes from a local dairy, which I think is pretty cool. What are you drinking? I am drinking my organic breastfeeding tea, which actually I'm currently drinking all day. But to have something very new, I, I bought a different kind for today, which I Ooh. avoided so far because it's the most expensive one. So I'll see if it's worth the money. Yeah, that's great. Is breastfeeding tea generally good or is it just something you drink because it has like a purpose? Well, to be honest, I think you have to get used to it a bit because it contains things like, I don't know, anise and fennel and caraway. So you have to get used to it. But I really like herbal teas. So I, I really like it, actually. I, I really enjoy drinking it. That's great. So I'm going to give mine a try. Mine is pretty delicious, but it's something I usually drink. So I knew that. How is your new expensive type of tea? Yeah, it's, it's good, actually. It's, it's a bit more intense than the other one. So yeah, maybe I'll buy it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. So we're going to talk about a really neat topic. And I think this is a topic that very few listeners have even heard of, which is international space law, and specifically how this applies to asteroid deflection. So I've often said that an asteroid impact is the only natural disaster we have the technology to prevent. If we know it, an asteroid is headed our way in 30 years, for example, we can do something about it. But it turns out that not all of the things we can do are actually legal. So right now, for example, there's no international law that explicitly requires that a country inform another country about an NEO impact threat. Can you talk about that? Yes, that's true. Actually, even more generally, there is no international law that would explicitly deal with planetary defense at all. So that includes, of course, the information sharing on possible new impacts. But there are nevertheless a number of international law principles and also provisions that are applicable in the context of planetary defense. So this includes, for instance, international space law, but also other areas of international law, international environmental law, the law on nuclear non-proliferation, etc., etc. So in the case of information sharing, international space law is applicable to the extent that the information was gained through a space activity. And in international space law, we have five UN space treaties. The most important, I would say, is the Outer Space Treaty. That is the first of the five treaties. And, and, and that treaty sets out the, the principal framework for internationally regulating space activities and is then complemented by the, the four other treaties. For the question of information sharing, the Outer Space Treaty is important because it contains several principles and provisions that deal with cooperation. 
most important maybe is Article 11 of the Outer Space Treaty because Article 11 really obliges states to share the results of their space activities. So again, insofar as the information on a possible new impact threat is a result of a space activity, then clearly states would be obliged to share this information with the United Nations, but also with the international scientific community and even the public at large. International space laws are important uh, in this regard, but what is also important and very exciting actually for lawyers is the case law of the International Court of Justice, because the International Court of Justice actually in its very first case already dealt with information sharing. And of course, it's always very exciting if we can apply something <laughs> that International Court of Justice has dealt with uh, in its very early days to something that is coming up now. And in that case, the so-called Corfu Channel case, Two British ships were damaged by mines in the Albanian territorial waters when passing through the Corfu Channel, and that led to the death or injury of over 80 persons. And the court at the time held that Albania was under the obligation to share the information about the existence of the minefield in order to avoid the injuries and loss of human lives, and that this obligation was based on elementary considerations of humanity. So also in the case of a new impact threat, if a state has information on such a threat, it could, on the basis of elementary considerations of humanity, be obliged to share this information with the state or the states that are affected. In addition, we also have international disaster law that is applicable. And under international disaster law, you also have a duty to cooperate in order to save human lives in the event of disasters. And that would also include information sharing. So these are all bases under international law for a duty to share information on a new impact threat, even though, of course, neither news nor planetary defense is explicitly mentioned in, in all those principles and uh, treaty obligations. That's so interesting that a case about a ship and some mines are so applicable to something so different, but I, I guess that makes sense. And to be clear, the scientific community does share this information. So even though the law isn't specifically dictating that. It's something people do currently right now. Are countries legally required to mitigate an NEO threat? That's a very good question and an important question also. And I think it's a question that can be divided into two aspects. One is, are states obliged to carry out a planetary defense mission to protect their own population? And the other is, are they obliged to also assist other states in carrying out a planetary defense mission? And... In this regard, international human rights law is, is surprisingly maybe for you, but it's relevant. And also international disaster law. In particular, actually, in, in international human rights law, the right to life. Because the right to life has a, a positive and a negative side to it. Not only are states obliged to refrain from interfering with the enjoyment of the right to life, but also they have a positive obligation to really protect and ensure the right to life. So this includes a duty to adopt appropriate measures to safeguard human lives. And that can also include measures to prevent or mitigate natural disasters. So this could mean that states are also obliged to undertake a planetary defense mission to save their population from damage. What is very important in this regard is that really there is a focus on prevention of the risk of disasters under international disaster law and really on preparedness and planning and an early warning and risk assessment. So I think that is important in, in the context of planetary defense because, of course, I think, I hope you agree that for an efficient 
response to a new impact threat, you need a lot of preparation in advance. So you have to have the capabilities for observing the new, for uh, characterizing it. Then you need the technology to deflect it. So all of this can't be done when we discovered that there's a new coming. So, uh, so this is why I think it's very suitable, even though maybe the area is human rights law, disaster law is, is very broad, but it, it can be very well suited to planetary defense. And the other aspect that is very important, I think, is that this obligation very much depends on the available resources. So, of course, if you have a country that has already difficulty in ensuring the right to life of, of its population through, let's say, basic medical care, because the financial resources are simply not there, then it would be difficult to ask from that state to now prepare deflection technologies. But nevertheless, the state that would be affected by a potential new impact has a primary role in and has an obligation to protect its population. And... This could also mean that it asks for external help. So if the state cannot by itself deal with the impact threat, then at least it has the obligation to ask for external assistance. And that, of course, leads us to the second part of the question, which is, are states now obliged to assist others? And this is not an obligation under international law. So there is no obligation for states to assist others. They can offer assistance, but they're not, not obliged to. What there is, a general duty to cooperate. So the, the duty to cooperate is enshrined in, in international human rights law, but also in international space law and international environmental law. And international space law, I've already mentioned before, there are several provisions in the Outer Space Treaty dealing with international cooperation that are, of course, also of relevance here. In international environmental law, there is a duty to cooperate in the prevention or minimization of harm to the territory of other states or also to areas beyond national jurisdiction, meaning, for instance, outer space, but also the high seas, etc. So this duty, for instance, includes consultation, negotiation, the participation of states that, that could likely be affected. And that means that if you launch a planetary defense mission, you also need to take proper account of the risks that might be involved. And, and the uncertainties that might be involved. And then correspondingly, you need to involve countries that, that might be affected. You probably get this joke all the time, but it's not going to be like Armageddon, where the US just launches it and doesn't talk to anybody. That's probably not the best solution. That's probably not the best solution. Um, but I think that actually in the area of planetary defense, cooperation is extremely important. I mean, it's important because, first of all, of course, we have countries that do not have the technology to launch deflection missions by themselves. But also because depending on the size of the NEO and, and the location of its impact, it could also affect several countries, not necessarily just one country. And of course, also, as we said, the, the risks that might be involved and the, and the uncertainties concerning characteristics of the NEO, the exact knowledge of the impacts, location, but also the effects of the impact, etc. I think this makes international cooperation very important in, in a new threat situation. Absolutely. So if we imagine that an asteroid was headed towards Brazil and Canada decided to launch a spacecraft to deflect that asteroid, would that be legal under international law? It depends. I think there's a joke <laughs> that the answer you most get from law is it, it depends, but it, it really depends. I mean, it, it depends first of all of 
the technology that is used. So if you would use a nuclear explosive device, for instance, for the deflection, because that you know could be the only possibility, then that would certainly not be legal under international law. This is very clear. There are treaties prohibiting this. There is, first of all, the Outer Space Treaty, which in Article 4 prohibits that nuclear weapons are placed in, in Earth orbit. And more importantly, in that case, is the Limited Test Ban Treaty. And the Limited Test Ban Treaty prohibits all kinds of nuclear explosions underwater, in the atmosphere, and also in outer space. So then, of course, the deflection would be illegal under international law. But there are also other aspects that we have to consider. For instance, what are the risks involved in the mission? Have the risks been thoroughly assessed and addressed? Have they been shared with affected states, likely affected states? Has there been consultation with those states? Have they had the possibility to participate in the mission planning, etc.? So this would also be the important aspects. And what we should not forget is also liability, because liability really does not depend on whether there has been a breach of an international obligation. So the Outer Space Treaty and the Liability Convention, they regulate liability for, for space activities at the Liability Convention sets forth liability for damage in outer space if the launching state is at fault and absolute liability um, for damage on Earth. So absolute liability really means that even if the launching state of the deflection mission in, in that case um, has taken all precautions, all possible safety standards are fulfilled and really there's no breach of an international obligation, nevertheless, if damage occurs, the, the launching state would be liable and would have to pay compensation. So this applies really to any kind of damage. So this could be damaged by, I don't know, a malfunctioning spacecraft, for instance, but also if the asteroid is deflected and then um, hits another country, then it would have hit if there was no intervention. So even then, this indirect causation of the damage would lead to liability of the launching state of deflection mission. So if, kind of in this example, if Canada launches a deflection mission and something goes wrong, like the asteroid doesn't hit Brazil, but it hits a neighboring country, then Canada is liable, which may discourage Canada from doing anything because there's exactly. huge amounts of liability, I guess, involved. Yes, exactly. There can be huge amounts of liability involved. And I think this is certainly something that could discourage states from launching a deflection mission in particular to assist other states. But liability could be addressed through international arrangements already in advance, so before a mission is actually launched, so that the states undertaking the mission would not have to carry the burden, so to speak, of liability, or at least would not have to bear it alone. And at the same time, if damage occurs, the victims of the damage would be compensated and affected countries would receive international assistance. And you said this very clearly, but uh, it's new to a lot of people, so I'm just going to repeat it. So there's under no circumstances can you legally detonate a nuclear explosion in space, even if that's the best way to deflect an asteroid. It's currently just totally illegal right now. Exactly. There are treaties prohibiting it, but that doesn't mean that there is not a solution. Ah. Um, so, <laughs> yes, under international law, there are nevertheless possibilities. So... I would say that the, the most important possibility is we do have 
a recognized international forum to discuss, for instance, the situation of a possible new impact threat. And that is the UN Security Council. So that the Security Council could authorize states to undertake a planetary defense mission, even though this would usually be contrary to, to their international obligations. And the decisions of the Security Council are really binding upon all member states. So states would then have to carry out whatever decision the Security Council takes. We also, of course, have the UN General Assembly and we have the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, which cannot take binding decisions, but they can nevertheless garner international support for such a mission. I think that a decision by the Security Council is probably the best solution in that case. There could be other solutions, for instance, there are circumstances called circumstances precluding wrongfulness that can, under certain conditions, justify actions by states that are not in conformity with international law. And in the case of planetary defense, this could in particular be constant distress and necessity. Distress and necessity concern situations where human lives or essential interests of a state are at risk. But these are very narrow in their scope and are limited to exceptional cases. And it could also be difficult to evaluate whether the conditions under which a breach of an international obligation can be justified are met in a specific situation. And so I would say that a decision by an international forum, in particular the UN Security Council, would be a preferable option in this regard because you would really have a multilateral basis for a decision to carry out a planetary defense mission that would normally not be in conformity with international law. One possibility could be to change the treaties, in particular the limited test ban treaty. But treaty changes can be very difficult. First of all, you have certain consensus requirements. There can be very lengthy formal processes. And it's also not always advisable to change treaties because the outcome could be of a lower standard than the original treaty text. Usually, in most cases, there's a very lengthy negotiation process where compromises are, are being reached and you have to really be careful to not disrupt this balance that has been found during the negotiation. And especially in the case of the limited nuclear test ban treaty, but also nuclear non-proliferation laws in general, you have to be very careful really to not lower the standards and undermine them because they are really... I would say, one of the cornerstones of international peace and security. And then it could be very dangerous, actually, even to change them. Yeah, they do such an important job right now to keep everybody safe. Like, let's not touch them. Let's keep them working and find another way <laughs> to deal with the asteroids. Exactly. And then another way could be a decision by the Security Council, which would then only be one exception, but would not lower the standard and would not undermine the treaties in general. That's so interesting because I think when most people imagine this scenario, they think about the technical challenges of deflecting an asteroid and not the fact that the UN would be involved and people would have to discuss it and you'd have to come to a consensus. And that might take some time and that might take a lot of effort to do. Yes, of course. It can take some time to reach decisions, but I think the more we raise awareness now and the better we are prepared, the more likely it is that we have a decision in a serious situation that would be in accordance with international law. Because, I mean, of course, if really there is a new impact threat, very urgent, uh, no time available, and then NED is the only option, probably most states would not take a lot of time to think about international law. 
but of course, if you have more time available, I would say the more time you have available, the more time you have to think about international law. And then if you do not consider international law, and especially the law on, on nuclear non-proliferation and laws prohibiting nuclear explosions in outer space, um, then this would really undermine those laws. And this is, I think, a, a very big danger. And so I think it's very important to really work in advance, to have a solution ready when we have an impact threat. But I think in a really urgent situation, the Security Council can meet quickly and can take a decision quickly. So it's not impossible. That's good to hear. (laughs) Is there any other aspect of space law that you're really excited about that we didn't cover? Maybe not about asteroids, about something different? Of course, the legal aspects of asteroid deflection is the most exciting topic that I have been working on so far. But there are also other exciting topics that I've been dealing with, for instance, space debris, which I think is also a very important topic. Also space traffic management and the sustainability of space activities, which is, for instance, a topic that we've worked on in the UN Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space for quite a while. And otherwise also national space law, because the Austrian space law is not that new anymore, but still quite new. And so we had a process where a national satellite went through the whole authorization process for the first time under the Austrian national space law. And this was, of course, very exciting to to see law in practice. And I think that is really the exciting part of my work, that it's on the one hand, a lot of research and teaching and writing articles, but on the other hand, also the practical part. So with the work at the United Nations and with the national space law, So that's very exciting, I think. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. This was excellent. I learned a lot. And now that we've heard all about different aspects of international space law, we get to hear a fun fact about Cordula. Well, a fun fact about me, I don't know if it's a fun fact or actually a sad fact, uh, because I asked my husband, what is a fact about? (laughs) Um, And he said at the very beginning when we met, he he thought I was like Sheldon from... uh, (laughs) Big Bang Theory. Um, so I didn't know, I have to admit, I, I hardly ever watched TV and I did not know Big Bang Theory at all, which already makes me maybe a little bit a nerd. But anyways, I didn't know it. So then the first show he made me watch was by coincidence, I think something with a bird. And Sheldon was afraid of a bird in front of his window. And of course, I'm afraid of birds. So I was, in the beginning, I was a bit sad because I found Sheldon is, is you know, a bit impolite and not very empathetic. So my husband said, no, 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 you are very polite, very empathetic, even too empathetic, because I donate to every cause that comes to my mind. But nevertheless, uh, he said, well, I am a polite, friendly and empathetic Sheldon, which I guess I can live with and being bazingered every once in a while. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, this is the the fact about myself. (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing. And thanks so much for being on the show. This was fantastic. Thank you so much for inviting me. Really, it was a pleasure. And yeah, thank you. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Intro music is from The Return by Deltron3030. Huge thanks to Deltron3030 for letting me use it. The beeps you just heard are from the very first space probe, Sputnik. You can visit us at listentospacepod.com and we're at listentospacepod on Twitter. The views expressed here do not reflect the views of my employer or the employer of my guest. Thanks for listening.